we seek, but he also asks the questions we need to hear. Let's get close enough to listen to his wisdom and also be ready with our answer when the Jesus question comes our way. when the Jesus question comes our way. That's what this series has been about, trying to help us do that. Here's the thing about today, though, as we close this series. Jesus' question ain't coming at you. It's not being addressed to you. And I'm not sure that there's anything you can do to get ready for it. But it is a question that you've likely asked before. Or if not, you will ask it one day. Through all the questions in this series, we've taken time to understand the context around them. There's some, some dynamics at play, both from the perspective of the asker and the receiver. And it's important that you pay attention to those things. Like you think about that question Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? He was talking to his disciples in the midst of a region that was known for its uh, dedication to worship of other gods. People had their hopes and dreams all tied up in various superstitions. And there was all kinds of opinions swirling about who Jesus was and what he was about, and that's when he put at point blank, who do you say that I am? And then you think about our context as hearers, as we received that question and had to think about all the things that we were bringing to that, our story, our past, our baggage, where we're headed, where we're going, what we want is we're invited to see Jesus for who he is, God's spirit stirring in our spirits as over 200 people decided to get baptized and say, Jesus, I trust you are who you say you are. You got to understand the context. That's not surprising to us, really. Like a man would do well to tune into the context when his woman asks him, uh, how do I look in this dress? You know, he, there could be a lot going on there. I mean, does she want the truth? Does she want to be affirmed? She just want to be noticed? How emotionally connected are we at the time? How much is that factoring into it? You just, you just don't know. You got to pay attention to the context. Uh, and that's true of the question today. There's a lot of uh, dynamics at play. Some things that you can see and some things that you can't see that will meet as a question is put forth. A Jesus question. It's not being addressed to you, but it is a question that you've likely asked before, or if not, you will one day. I should also let you know that today's episode ends with To Be Continued. Now, I don't like those shows. They are annoying. Uh, Not quite as annoying with Netflix, because you can just quick jump to the next one. But life is not always like that. Today is not like that. It ends with To Be Continued. And so uh, don't go hollering at me if you leave today unsatisfied. Not, not that it's my job to entertain you. Uh, I am with you just trying to hear from God, trying to get close enough to Jesus to hear from God. That's what we're going to try to do today. Are you ready? Oh, okay. All right. Uh, first, let's talk about what's unseen. We've been following Jesus on tour, so to speak. He's been preaching and teaching and healing several deeds of power to his credit. And all of that is about to come to an end. Nobody can see that, but Jesus seems to know. There's a holiday coming up, uh, Passover, and everybody's coming to the city, doing what they do like they always do, like Christmas in New York, everybody going to Rockefeller Center. But Jesus is looking at this in a whole new way. Uh, Jesus grew up coming to the city. This is Jerusalem. We got one story from Jesus from his younger growing up years. What is it? Do you know? 
Yeah, yeah, some people are mumbling it under their breath. He was left behind in, in the city. His parents find him at the temple, 12-year-old boy Jesus mixing it up with these religious scholars. Jesus knows the scriptures. More importantly, he knows the God behind the scriptures. The God who created the earth and gave life to humankind is the God who has made himself known to his people. The Bible describes that God has a relationship with his people. It's a relationship characterized mostly by God's benevolent, powerful, loving, saving acts on behalf of his people and his people's stubborn, rebellious, thanks but no thanks responses. Now, there are some bright spots, some streaks where love and faithfulness are met with love and faithfulness, but God's people can never seem to break out of the cycle of their sinful patterns. God's freed them from the oppression of foreign nations, but they can never fully escape the bonds of their rebellious hearts. And so their relationship with God is forever strained. Passover, the holiday, celebrated the freedom that God granted. That fateful night back in Egypt when they were suffering under the yoke of oppression. This was foundational history for them. Would have been like an early American thinks of the Revolutionary War. Or a freed slave thinks and remembers uh, they're escaping through the Underground Railroad. God's people celebrated that moment when God commanded a lamb to be killed. The blood from that lamb to be painted across the door frames of their houses. So that when the plague of death came, it would pass over all the houses marked with the blood of the lamb and they would be set free. They would escape death and escape slavery. God freed them in the most dramatic way. And now there is an unseen drama unfolding again that only Jesus can see. Jesus knows what God has done in the past, his love, his grace given to his people. And now he knows that all of that is going to be unleashed in a new way, which will again bring victory and freedom for God's people. Not vanquishing some political power like little old Egypt, but victory over the very forces of darkness that wage an unseen war against us and keep us in sin. God is Uh, doing something. He's on the move. It's in this moment he's chasing down his people who are running away from him, not to smite them, but to love them back to himself and beat down the sin and death that holds them captive. Jesus is tuned into the context. He's aware of all the unseen dynamics to the point that he now understands himself as the lamb whose blood will mark the victory and freedom for God's people. Through his blood, people will be able to escape their slavery to sin. In the realm of the invisible, God's victory is at hand. Now let's talk about what you can see. A man is on trial, not before a jury of his peers, but among an angry mob who all condemned him as worthy of death. Some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and mocked him and the guards took him and beat him. This is Jesus, of course. I'm in Mark chapter 14. So Jesus gets beat up on this evening. Uh, Some of us uh, maybe have had that happen to us before. You know someone who's jumped or ganged up on. So you can imagine what that is like. What's harder to imagine is what happens to Jesus the next day. After he's condemned by the Jewish court, he's held in custody overnight until he can be taken to the Roman court in the morning so that his accusers can pursue the death penalty. Here's the problem. Uh, The religious leaders can't reconcile what Jesus teaches about God and what they know about God. And they can't tolerate it because Jesus' way doesn't shed very favorable light on them. So he has to be eliminated. 
The Roman governor, uh, who ends up with Jesus' fate in his hands, doesn't care at all what the Jewish leaders think, but he does care about what the Roman emperor thinks about the orderliness of his little territory. And so to save face and to keep things under control, he gives the command for Jesus' punishment to be carried out. Now, the Bible doesn't give a lot of detail about that, and it doesn't have to. When the Bible says the governor had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified, everyone would have had a very vivid understanding of the context. But we uh, need a little more help in seeing what was really going on. So I'm going to try to do that. Uh, This isn't typical preaching. It might feel more like a documentary, but I think it's important to do that today. Once Jesus' fate was decided, he was in the hands of a Roman company of soldiers who would carry out the flogging. Uh, This was when a prisoner or a slave, because that's who these punishments were for, was stripped naked and then chained or tied to an upright pole. And they would be beaten all along the back and the buttocks and the legs with, with these leather whips, multiple thongs on the whips braided together with metal pieces or uh, sheep bone, pieces of sheep bone, designed, of course, to tear and gouge and rip the flesh with every strike. Streams of blood would just flow, as you can imagine. Now, uh, the Jewish law stipulated a maximum of 40 lashes. But Jesus is not in the hands of the Jews. These are the Romans. And they had perfected this form of torture to not only provide the maximum pain over a maximum period of time, but to totally dehumanize and humiliate the criminal and to send an ominous message to the community about who's in control and about what happens when people try to live outside that control. So Jesus, again, he was beat up the night before, endures this for however long until the soldiers decide they're finished. Many would just die from the flogging. Jesus didn't. When they were finished, it says they put his clothes back on him. I can't imagine that they were very gentle as they draped his clothes across his badly beaten shoulders. And then upon those shoulders, they would have thrust uh, the patibulum, which was the crossbar of the cross. The criminal would have to carry this out to the site of execution, which was outside the city for Jesus, a distance of about a lap and a half around the running track. We know Uh, from the scriptures that Jesus wasn't able to carry it the entire way, likely due to his weakness from the severity of the flogging, which the Bible says also included several blows to the head with a rod. Once arriving at the site of the crucifixion, the soldiers took Jesus' clothes off him again, no doubt opening his many wounds. Or if that didn't do it, then when he was thrown down to be nailed to the patibulum, that surely would have. At this point, the criminal is thrown down and fastened to the patibulum with nails of about, you know, seven inches long, three-eighths inch diameter in, uh, in thickness. Uh, and what, this is where our, our Bibles uh, mislead us a little bit in our English translations. When it says the hand, the hand referred to the forearm and the hand. And so when it says the nails went through his hands, it's not the palm. I mean, there's nothing there. It's just flesh would just tear. It's not going to hold up a body. It was really driven through the wrist among the carpal bones, right between the radius and the ulna, so the body could hang. Now, there's a median nerve that runs through there, which would have been severed or crushed from the spike. You ever had nerve pain? It's no picnic. It's like a burning sting, like fiery bolts shooting. It would have likely caused the, the hand to claw up like this from that damage. 
And so with both wrists attached to the wood, then the prisoner would be lifted up with the patibulum and placed up on the stipes, which was uh, the vertical pole of the cross, of course, much taller than this, so that the, the feet then could be nailed to the front of the stipes. The legs would be, knees would be flexed and bent up like this so that the spike could go right through the top of the foot among the metatarsals, either one nail through, crossed over, or two nails, one through each foot. And then, it said, this is mentioned in Jesus' case, the titulus, the sign that had Jesus' name and his crime was then affixed up above the head. So this left the criminal in, in a position that was kind of like this. Death at this point came at a rate that was usually inversely proportional to the severity of the flogging. As Jesus hung here, I mean, never mind the, the jeering and the mocking from the soldiers and the uh, angry crowd and the religious leaders, but the, physically, the body's under extreme So the arms would have likely come out of joint at the shoulder from the pressure of the hanging here. And it's a position from which it's very difficult to breathe. In fact, impossible to, to really breathe fully. You can inhale, but you can't exhale. And so in order to get a full breath, uh, Jesus would have had to push down on the spikes in his feet, searing pain, shooting through damaged nerves, and pull up on the spikes in his wrist, searing pain, shooting through damaged nerves, scraping his badly scourged back across the wood just to rise up and exhale the carbon dioxide and stay alive. Blood loss was pretty significant by this point, so it made death from hypovolemic shock an ever-increasing possibility, or very likely just exhaustion from having to continually raise up and breathe would lead to asphyxia, uh, suffocation. If the criminal stayed alive too long, the soldiers would just break the legs and then couldn't push up to get any breath anymore. So for hours, this is what you see. It's what the Jewish leaders wanted to see. It's what the Roman soldiers wanted everyone to see. Jesus contained, squirming only so far as his cramped muscles will take him. Arms out of joint, back ripped to shreds, life tearing on only so long as he can gather the strength to rise up and breathe. Witnesses testify that Jesus did speak from the cross would have had to been one of those moments where he pushed up to exhale. During one of those times, he asked this question. is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the Jesus question that we encounter today. It's been a heavy day. Uh, I remember the first time I really heard uh, teaching about what crucifixion is. I was in college and my professor went through something much like what I just described. And it wasn't 
just academically enlightening, but it was spiritually disturbing. Disturbing in, in a good way. Disturbed in a, let me actually stop and think about that kind of way. Take note of that. Consider the plight, the commitment of this Jesus whom I claim to trust. This part of the calendar with a holiday coming up, it invites us to take note of Jesus' suffering, to sit with it a little bit, to appreciate the depths of what Jesus is experiencing and feeling, the pit from which this question would be drawn forth and cast in the direction of God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me, God? I don't know if anything gets you ready for that question, but I'll bet you've asked it before, or if not, you will one day. Some of us are asking it right now. Where are you, God? Why, are, why can't I find you? Why can't I hear you? Now, I know for some of us, it's sunny. Life is rolling along. You got promoted. You had a baby. You aced the test. You passed your physical. You don't even have any cavities. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. You have confidence in that. Others of us are not so sure. We're wrestling with whether or not that is true. And if we're not doing it today, you will someday. This Jesus question and the context around it leaves a lot for our brains and our hearts to, to sort out. Let's try to organize it uh, a little bit. First, just, just the event of the cross. Uh, when I see Jesus suffering, I'm, I'm aware of my sin. My own prideful, stubborn, thanks but no thanks, rebuffing of God that I am guilty of. That guilt floods in, and if we'll allow it, it produces not just overwhelming despair, but it's allowed to produce repentance, sweeping humility before a holy God. And at the same time, rushing into that same place is full-figured gratitude and joy at the reception of God's extravagant grace. In the cross, the ugliness of sin and the wonder of love converge in the perfect sacrifice. A price was paid, but it cost us nothing. A verdict was rendered, but not against me, not against you. The people watching in the moment couldn't see it, but now I know, and we're all invited to know we are the recipients of a gift. In this holy week, it is good for all of us to take note of, to sit with the reality of the cross and see those things. Second, any curious mind is going to ask, wait, so now Jesus is God's son. In fact, Jesus is God, too, because of the Trinity thing. God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, how, what does it mean, then, that Jesus seems to be suggesting that God is not there? Did the band broke up for a time, or the Father couldn't handle the sight of blood, and so he left the room, or what's going on there? I can't, I can't parse that out for you. Right? Theologians have tried for centuries, and they don't all agree. I don't know all the mechanics of how the Trinity works or what was going on in the heavenlies in that moment. We can say what we know from Scripture. Jesus, who is God, suffered like we suffer, was tempted with the things that tempt us, cried over the things that make us cry. He can empathize with us in our weakness because he descended from on high to experience the same weakness. He bore our grief. He carries our sorrows. He, he felt what we feel. And because he took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, he knows the pain of a God-forsaken situation. I mean, everybody there that day would have assumed God wasn't there. 
Jesus' opponents know. They said, if he's from God, then let God come save him. God didn't. Two of his followers in Luke 24, they, they, in the aftermath of this whole situation, they say, we had hoped. We had hoped. God was a no-show. Everyone would have felt it. And Jesus, Jesus was human enough to feel it too. But the third thing loading us down is the sheer weight of the suffering. Jesus asked why, and that's what all of us want to know too. If life has not pushed you to the point of asking why, God, it will. Why is this happening to me? Hello, God, are you home? If, if you maybe don't know Jesus very well, you feel like you can't relate to him, maybe, maybe in this you can. Crucifixion level pain, I don't, I don't know, it's not a contest, but I've read enough prayer requests to know that for some, there is an intensity that we feel today, right now. Pain, loneliness, depression, heartbreak, your whole being cries out with Jesus, why? Others, for the moment, can only get there intellectually. You know suffering is real, even if you're not experiencing it right now. Or you have a friend who's going through something, and they're asking you questions that you don't feel like you have answers to. And there's nothing comfy about that either. Even if the sun is shining on you, the night eventually comes, and this Jesus question takes on a whole new character. Why aren't you there, God? Why are you so far from helping me, God? These questions come when there's a discrepancy between what you can see and what you can't see. That, that's what's going on right here. We've already described. In the, in the realm of the heavenlies, God's armies are advancing. The forces of darkness may think they've got it in the bag, but it's not even a contest. God wins. The good plans of God are unfolding. His powerful advance will not be stopped. His love is booming as he's creating a way for his people to know him and to have life in him. God is right there. But everything about what we can see tells a story of defeat and evil and weakness and hatred running roughshod over an innocent man. Where's God? The Romans are running the show. Poisonous religious leaders are behind the scenes pulling the strings. I mean, look around. Ain't nothing about these circumstances to give a hint that God's got to say here. And you know the feeling because we all have a conception of God. We, think, we know something about God. Now, however wrong or right it is, we probably know he's good and big. He can do the impossibly supernatural. We, don't, we can't see it, but we've been led to believe it. The scriptures seem to tell us that story. For some of us, even our past experience would confirm that to be true. Or we're sure we've heard somebody testify that God is alive. God is powerful. He's mighty to save. He provides. He sets us free. He's my deliverer. He's always there. But nothing about what you can see would suggest those things are true. The pain that won't go away. The empty room he left behind. The tiny casket. The test results. The depression, the loneliness, the abuse, the betrayal, 
the overdraft. There's there's such a disconnect between your circumstances and the invisible God you thought you knew to the point that you find yourself shouting a question into the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone, God? Why are you so far away from me? In other words, God, if you care and if you're powerful enough to beat down the forces of darkness, why won't you fix this thing right now? Even Jesus asked that question. It's been a heavy day. And you may not be convinced that there's anything that could make it lighter. Think of a movie that you've seen. It maybe has like a crime-solving kind of a plot. And there's a scene where there's a bunch of people gathered around watching like some video surveillance tape. And there's a moment where someone says, whoa, stop that. Rewind that. Play that again. Go back. I want to see that. And they notice something that they hadn't seen before. It's kind of like that with Jesus' question. The words of Jesus from the cross were not just an idle cry. If you go back and play it again, you might be able to make a connection. That is, if you know the scriptures that Jesus spent so much time studying and trying to teach others. If you have a a Bible or a phone, go ahead and take it out. Turn to Psalm 22. In the Old Testament, it's about right in the middle of your Bible. if If you've got one, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, it was part of God's people, like their playlist. Psalms were like their Spotify, right? Now, it wasn't Throwback Thursday, but Jesus is calling up a familiar track. Psalm 22 begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Jesus' cry is actually an ancient one. It's connected to this long history of faithful people who have suffered, who felt that painful disconnect between circumstances that don't make any sense and a God who seems out of reach. People who have found a way to give voice to those experiences. Scripture is full of examples of people who have suffered and who didn't do it silently. Psalm 22 is one of about 50 other psalms that also contains cries and questions and anger and grief. There's other voices, many of them in the Old Testament, prophetic voices that would express the same thing. Of all of them, Jesus found his voice particularly in Psalm 22. If you have it open, you maybe have read ahead already. It goes on to say things like this, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. 
on the cross, Jesus found his voice in the cry of the scriptures. He saw his story among the stories of other faithful sufferers who have lived long enough to, yes, experience God's goodness and God's love and provision and his blessing, but also his silence. And Jesus' cry, and among the many other cries of the Bible, you know, we use the Bible every week because we believe God speaks to us through it. But the Bible also gives us a voice. Jesus' cry on the cross, he's not just speaking to us, he's speaking with us. He's not directing words at us, he's giving words to us. And that's a... Beautiful thing about the Bible, once you can get familiar with it, it it contains expressions of faith lived out in the daylight and the dark, in the calm and the storm. And it helps us understand the cry of pain and the question of why within the context of a relationship with God as language that, that does belong in a relationship with God. It's not excluded from it. Now, we're always very cautious not to disrespect God, and rightly so. But the example of Jesus and the encouragement of the Bible is not to tell God off. That would be to move away from God, to make a determination to go your own way. But to cry in the way that the Psalms cry, to cry in the way that Jesus cried, is to move toward God. To keep the dialogue between you open in spite of the circumstances. No, it may not be a dialogue filled with, thank you for the world so sweet. But it is real, honest conversation. You say the truest thing you can say to God. To shout at someone you cannot see still requires faith. To holler a question into the darkness is evidence of faith. Not that it doesn't exist. Extreme circumstances push us to extreme language, and it calls for extreme faith. Again, Jesus, to cry like Jesus cried is not to whine and complain. It's, it's to call on God to be true to his character and commit to being true to yours. That's faith. To cry and to hang in. Hang on. Hold firm. In the midst of circumstances that don't make any sense, for which there's no guaranteed end, you cry and you wait. That's faith. You cry and you trust. You hold on to a belief that God is at work in the suffering in unseen ways, even when the circumstances seem to speak to the contrary. You can't see him, you can't hear him, you can't touch him. He seems absent in every way, but yet, You know what he's capable of. You know what he's done in the past. You know the cries he has heard, the questions he has answered. And though you don't know why he seems so long in coming this time around, in faith, you cry and you wait. You cry and you trust that God's story, that your story is to be continued. God's not done with you yet. For all of those who are suffering right now, that's what this moment demands of you. Answers are yet to come. The story is to be continued. For Jesus and all those who followed him to the God-forsaken cross, answers were yet to come. The story was to be continued. Very practically, as you wait, 
read the Psalms. About a third of them are full of the cries of faithful people. Perhaps in them you might find your voice. They might give you words that you can say to God. Whatever you do, keep the dialogue between you open and infuse it with honesty. I don't know how God will answer. I don't know when. But he has promised to be found by those who seek him, even when you have to go searching in the dark. Finally, it, it should be known that, that the cries of the Psalms are not just railroads down to the place of despair. It, like we said, it's not just whining. The story of Jesus and the, the events of Good Friday are to be continued, and the same is true of Psalm 22. You may have read on already. Like the other cries of lament in the Bible, it, it doesn't simply wallow in darkness. It proclaims the truth about light even when light cannot be seen. A cry of desperation and hopeful trust are both brought forth with equal intensity. Psalm 22 is the same way. That same broken and questioning voice that began Psalm 22 goes on to say, But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. And I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, when I go to church, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. I don't care what it looks like down here. Dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to a people yet unborn. He has done it. That story continues next week. When the light of Easter dawns, Jesus cried out and he endured with faith until it could be said, God has done it. Until God does whatever you're crying out for him to do, may the same faith live in you. Let's pray. God, we know that we need you, and we are so grateful that you meet us in moments of triumph and victory and in moments of despair and loneliness and difficulty and pain. Find us in that place. Don't let us go through it alone. In the places where we're feeling like no one is around to help, I pray that somehow you would prove yourself, that you would answer from on high, that you would bring all of your goodness and all of your power and all of your grace and make it known and present in our lives. And until then, until we see and know and feel and experience that, we will be faithful. We will follow you. We will trust you. Even when we don't have our questions answered, would you lead us, teach us to trust, encourage our faith, heal our pain, reveal yourself to us, God, wherever you find us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.